Let's pray together, and then we're going to be in Acts chapter 24 today. Lord, we, uh, we're ever mindful, and we never want to forget, Lord, the privilege we have uh, to have the Word of God. And Lord, we, we know that through the centuries, people haven't had access to it. We know that in some parts of the world, even today, people either don't have access or they have to hide their access to it. And here we are able to gather in a nice place. We're able to sit under it. Some of us keep Bibles in our cars and other ones in our homes. Some of us keep bunches scattered throughout the house. But Lord, your word is only effective as we sit under it. And that's what we've come to do today, Lord. We've come to sit under your word. We've come to hear from you. We've come to allow you to read us as much as we read it. For you to expose areas of our lives that still need the sanctifying process of Christ to take effect. Lord, you know our tendencies, you know our minds sometimes wander. We begin to think of other things we need to do today. And so, Lord, we want to take, um, sort of take our minds captive today. Every thought that enters in, Lord, we want to sift it through the word and apply it to our lives and our hearts. And so use this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts. Uh, Acts 24. We've been in the book of Acts since uh, the first Sunday of January 2021. Uh, so it's been a little while. Uh, and we're coming to the close. We're, today we're in chapter 24. There's 28 chapters. And I'm beginning to get a little sad. I don't know if you've ever read like a novel and uh, you finish and then you're sad because you're friends. You won't see your friends in your little book life any longer. Uh, that's how I'm beginning to feel. And so I'm trying to stretch it out. So maybe another two years uh, in these final chapters here. Uh, but I, I do find myself uh, almost dreading that we're going to be ending. But it's been good, I think. I hope you agree. Uh, but it's been good uh, to see these men, these women of the first century church uh, obey the Lord and go where the Lord would have them to go. And one of those men was this fellow Paul who in the beginning of the book wasn't even a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of the book was an enemy uh, of Christ and an enemy of the Christians and looked to put an end to the Christian faith. And yet God had a plan for his life. God got a hold of his heart. He brought him to himself. Uh, and Paul began to walk in obedience to that. And it's always a reminder to us that nobody that we care for, nobody that we know is too far. Every single person can come back into a right place with God through Jesus Christ and be used by God in great ways like the Apostle Paul was. And so we've been looking at his missionary journeys. Paul is the central figure of the second half of the book. We've been looking at his missionary journeys. We've come to the third of his missionary journeys, primarily in the city of Ephesus and some of the places around there. We took notice of how he left, he finished that journey, went to Jerusalem, began to... Uh, communicate with people as opportunities allowed, how he got arrested, how he had to stand trial. And we left off with the Apostle Paul being transferred from Jerusalem, which was sort of the, the Jewish capital of things, 
being transferred to the Roman capital of things, at least in that part of the world, and that was the city of Caesarea, where he was going to have a trial in Caesarea. So the Jews had tried him, and now the Romans were going to properly do so. In Jerusalem, they accused him of defiling the temple, that he had brought Gentiles into the temple. It wasn't true, but that's what they accused him of. And as I mentioned in the past, it was, it was almost like they, they ripped the Band-Aid off and then it just started flowing. So they started with he uh, defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile in there, which again, he didn't. And then they began to accuse him of everything that they didn't like about him. And he's upsetting the world. And he's doing all these kinds of things. Well, of course, that led to a riot. And Paul ended up being brought down to the city of Caesarea, where he stood before the Roman governor, a man, as we'll see, he will stand before the Roman governor, a man by the name of Felix. Paul has had, that'll be his fifth trial in about 10 days uh, in the course of the material that we were looking at. Um, and I put trials in sort of quotation marks because sometimes it's an informal situation, other times it is a formal situation. But he sees it as an opportunity, each one of those as an opportunity to tell his story. Jesus changed me. I'm not the man that I used to be. I'm not the person that I used to be. As a matter of fact, I used to be just like you. And those of you now that are persecuting me and talking about killing me because of my faith in Christ, I was there. I understand where you're coming from. Please listen to me as I reason with you about what happened to me and how the same thing can happen to you as well. And we saw in chapter 22 that the audience was with him. Man, it's, they were hanging on his words, it seems, until he said one word. Do you remember that one word? Okay. I, I, didn't, I have no idea what came out of it. It was the word Gentile. Who said that? Prather. Prather. Extra credit. All righty. No homework tonight for you. All right. It was the word Gentile. You remember that. Acts chapter 22, verse 22. It says, now up to this word, they listened to him. If you go back to the previous verse, the word is Gentile. They were with him until that moment in time. And I won't rehash the entire story, but they lost it. And they were looking to have him killed. Long story short, Paul is down in the city of Caesarea. And chapter 23 now, it ends with Governor Felix. Notice it says 2335. He says, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. They sent Paul with a letter Paul presents the letter in which Claudius Lysias explains, you know, this is what's going on, this is what people are saying, I don't know what to do about it, I'm going to need your help here. And Felix reads it and says, all right, I'll listen to you, I'll, I'll give you a case, a trial. When your accusers come, I will hear, give you a hearing. And that brings us to verse, chapter 24, and so we read this. Now after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. We love the Romans ruling over us, and you being the one that does it. Verse 4, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In fact, he even tried to profane the temple 
but we seized him. Now that's verse 6. Now depending on the version that you are reading, the text continues into what I'll call verse 6b. Some of your versions, however, skip right to verse 8. And perhaps down in the bottom, there's a little note that says some manuscripts include uh, these words, and it'll give it to you. Let me make a quick point here. We've said it before, but in case you're newer or you're not, you don't remember. We do not have any of the original letters of the Bible that were written. So the actual paper that Paul sat down on and wrote or Luke sat down on and wrote, we don't have any of those uh, originals. We have copies of those originals and multiple copies of those originals. Those are called manuscripts. And archaeologists over the years have discovered additional manuscripts. And in some cases, some of those manuscripts differ from others of the manuscripts. And that's why in some of our versions, which are based on certain manuscripts or not, it will tell you this verse appears in some manuscripts but doesn't. Does that make sense? And so that's the scenario that we have here. And so there are multiple manuscripts, multiple copies discovered all over the Middle East and the world that um, say this, and then there are multiple ones that say that. And since we don't have the actual originals, uh, that's why you have the discrepancy. I think a good Bible translation will let you know that at the, at the bottom. It'll either include it in there with a little note saying some manuscripts don't have this, or it won't include it in there with a little note that says some manuscripts do. And so I, I happen to be reading from the ESV. It doesn't include it sort of in the text. It puts it in a note at the bottom. Some of you may be reading something like the New King James or the King James. It includes it in it. So that being said, let me read it as if it's there. It doesn't change things drastically one way or the other, but I'll read it to you as if it should be included. Verse 6, going back, it says, Now he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, and we would have judged him according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came, out, uh, came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. Now picking up with what everyone should have in their text, Verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in their charge, affirming that all th these things were so. All right, so uh, they have gone down there. They have this gentleman whose name is Tertullus. He has presented what he has presented. Notice a few different people were introduced to. An uh, Ananias, the high priest. We were introduced to him in chapter 23, verse 2. He comes down. It tells us that along with him were a number of the elders. Remember, these are members of the Sanhedrin. We don't have all 70 probably, but a group of them come down, and they have hired or solicited the support of sort of a prosecuting attorney, a person that was good at uh, speaking, an orator of sorts. And his name is given to us. It's the name Tertullus. It's going to be his job to make the case. You're the best speaker. You do it. And so he's going to make the case here as the spokesman before the governor on behalf of the high priest and these other members of the Sanhedrin. He's going to present four charges against the Apostle Paul. You'll notice he never presents any evidence. He doesn't bring any witnesses. But he presents four charges against Paul. This is what Paul has done, and this is why you should do something to him. Kill him, put him in jail, do something. 
okay? But he never presents any evidence. First, look at verse 2. He starts off with a little feigned flattery. I'm not, I wasn't sure if this word was appropriate or not. A little butt kissing. Are we allowed to say that? If we're not, I won't say it. I, I shouldn't say it. All right, I will not say butt kissing. That's inappropriate. But that's how he begins, okay? He says, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in everywhere, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. Now, the only true part of that statement coming from this guy, Tortullus, is the governor's name. His name indeed was Felix. But nothing else is true here. The Jews didn't look to Felix as their source of much peace. As a matter of fact, he caused a whole lot of problems for the Jewish people. They didn't look to him and, or through whom uh, believed that uh, reforms were being made. They were, but not reforms that were satisfactory to the nation of the Jews. In fact, we know historically the Jews despised Felix. And on regular occasions, insurrectionists among the Jews, people like the Zealots, you remember that term, rose up and tried to overthrow Felix. And then Felix would respond by just killing a whole bunch of Jews and taking all of their stuff from their homes. So the Jews hated this man. But that's not what Felix says here. Instead, he flatters him. William Barclay, the old commentator, I believe, out of England, he referred to it as nauseating flattery. And I believe that is a good description. He goes on, however. He says, look, I don't want to hold you any further. But to detain you no further, you're such an important man. He says, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Verse 5, for we have found this man to be a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He says he even tried to profane the temple. There's his four charges. The first two are found in uh, verse 4 there. He refers to Paul as a plague. Some of your versions might say as a pestilence. Some of your versions might just say as a pest. All right, But not like you're annoying, kid, go away. He's a plague. We might use the term a cancer. You might say that. You know, I'll tell you, that guy's a cancer. You need to be careful with that. That's how he's referring to the Apostle Paul as a cancer within Israel, and particularly because of Felix, in Rome. All over the world, he's a troublemaker. Secondly, he charges Paul with stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, he says here. And of course, we've learned this, what's one of the primary responsibilities of a Roman official, military or government, maintain order. And here's this guy, he's stirring up trouble throughout the whole world. You should deal with him, Felix. Thirdly, as we see in verse 5, it says that he is a ringleader, he's, he's referred to as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Nazarene is a reference to Nazareth, uh, which is a reference to Jesus. And so they're saying that he is a ringleader of the sect of the followers of that Jesus. What, what uh, Tertullus is doing here, his point is this, he's saying that Paul is part of a messianic movement. Now that, Paul would say, you're right, I am a part of a messianic movement. But what Tertullus has in mind is a messianic movement in Rome was always looked at with suspicion. Because these messiah figures that would rise up, they were, gonna, they were trying to rise up to become the king. 
to overthrow governors, to overthrow the emperor, to reestablish Jewish rule within the area. And so he's making this statement, Paul is one of those people that are part of those groups. Today we might say something like, you know, this guy's a terrorist, and he's trying to do what he's doing uh, to upset things here in Rome. And then the fourth thing that we see down in verse 6, it says he even tried to profane the temple. And again, uh, that's the reference to where they thought that he had brought with him a Gentile within the temple. But again, uh, the charge wasn't true. He doesn't give any evidence even of it. Instead, notice what he does here in verse 8. He says, look, why don't you examine him? I'm just going to leave this stuff out there. And then he kind of puts it in the hands of Felix. And so he says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Let the judge do the hard work that the prosecutor is supposed to be doing. The prosecutor is supposed to be bringing the witnesses and presenting the evidence. And he says, why don't you just uh, talk to him? And I, and I guess he, what he's thinking is perhaps Paul will say something that will incriminate himself and it'll accomplish his purpose. That's what this Tertullus fellow does. Well, let's continue on. I'm going to read a lengthy portion starting in verse 10. It says, Now when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's Paul's attempt at flattery. All right, you've ruled here long, (laughs) he says. All right. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find, uh, in, find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in their synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring, now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Verse 17. And now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd, without any tumult. But some Jews from Asia, you know, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should should they have something against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before their council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Okay? So Paul there, he begins his defense of the charges against him. As I said, he gives a a brief word expressing kind of gratitude for the opportunity uh, to speak. And then he begins to address the charges. The first two, that he was a troublemaker, that he was a plague, that he was a cancer on society. And the second one, that he was looking to stir up riots. He addresses those in verses 11 and 12. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, whether it be their temple, whether it be in their synagogues, whether it be in their city streets. They can't bring anyone here that says I was doing those things. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. I kind of summarize Paul's words this way. Look, I've been in Jerusalem less than two weeks. 
How much trouble could I have gotten into in less than two weeks? He says, and besides that, I went to Jerusalem not to cause trouble, but to worship. Ask around, he says. I didn't cause any trouble. I didn't stir up anything, or at least I wasn't the cause of those things. And so what they're saying to you, it didn't happen. Don't believe them. That's the first two charges. I'm a plague and I'm a, and a, a ringleader of like riots and stuff, I, starting riots. Verse, uh, the third charge is that he was a ringleader of this messianic sect. And he addresses that. That's from verse 5. He's going to address that next. So what the fella is trying to do, Tertullus is trying to do, is link Paul with insurrectionists. Paul wasn't an insurrectionist. Paul wasn't trying to overthrow the Romans. That wasn't his primary concern at all. His primary concern was eternal. Romans 13, he would tell Christian people, you should obey the governing authorities. The governing authorities are from God, he would say. He's not trying to overthrow the Romans at all, but yet that's what they were accusing him of. And so Paul says, look, they're right in one regard. I am a follower of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father except through me. And Paul says, I believe that with all my heart. And early on in, the Christ, in uh, this time that we're looking at here, first century, the Christian faith became known of as the way. People that followed it were called followers of the way. Because of the emphasis they put that there's only one way to heaven. And that's through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because our sin keeps us from heaven, but the righteous one came and paid the price for our sin. And so there can be no other way, because our sin keeps us from heaven. We're followers, even today, of the way. Paul says, I follow the way, what they call a sect. That's how I worship. I am a part of that group. And he says, but rather than trying to overthrow the Romans, I'm a part of this group, but not to overthrow the Romans. I'm a part of this group because we worship the God of our fathers, according with everything that has been written in the law and the prophets. They were saying of Paul privately, not in this setting here because it doesn't matter to Felix, but what they had been saying to Paul is, you're trying to abolish the Jewish faith. Paul says, I'm not trying to abolish the Jewish faith. I am living out the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith is looking for a Messiah to come. I found him. We found him. You can find him. And I'm walking according to, as he says there, everything that has been written in the law and in the prophets. Paul might say to them, I'm embracing the Jewish faith more than you're embracing the Jewish faith. At least the biblical Jewish faith. True, I don't follow your traditions, but I do follow the word. And lastly, Paul addresses the fourth charge, which has to do with that he tried to profane the holy temple. And he addresses that in verses 17 to 24. To 21. Again, no um, witnesses were there. Paul had never brought a Gentile into the restricted temple areas. And if they were going to accuse him of being defiled and going in, if that was where they're going to kind of go with this, Paul, remember, he followed all the ritual purifications that were required of him to bring his offering uh, in that particular sacrifice. And so their accusation is simply not true. Again, look at verse 19. And by the way, where are the witnesses? They should be here, if there are any. And I guess by implication, and they're not. That's why they're not here, because there aren't any. 
And so both sides have presented their case. Maybe more words were said, almost certainly more words were said than what was recorded, but this is what Luke has given us. Uh, the prosecutor, he presented his case, Paul presented his defense, and now it goes before Felix to make a decision. That comes up in verse 22. It says, but Felix, having a ra rather accurate knowledge of the way, that's the Christian faith, he, he knew about these things, he was familiar, he put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So he has the information that he needs, but his decision then is saying, you know what, I'll come back to this later. When Lysias gets down here, I'll ask him some things, and then uh, perhaps then I'll make a decision. And so it says in verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. All right, and, and that seems to be an indicator that he knew Paul was innocent, but he wasn't ready to take the Jews on. He wasn't ready to say to them, no, you guys are wrong. This man is right. You guys are wrong. And so he knows kind of that Paul is obviously innocent, but he also doesn't want to incur the wrath of the Jewish people. And so his solution, what a lot of people do, is they just don't make a decision. And they just postpone it and put it aside as if some, somehow that's going to solve the problem. It's not. It's going to, you're going to have to deal with it at some point in time. In his case, when Lysias gets down here, my suspicion, then I can blame whatever my decision is on Lysias. Because, you know, I was going to do that, but, you know, Lysias, whatever. Interesting to note, Lysias never made it down there. Never came down for, to complete this particular trial. But Paul is uh, in... Imprisoned. I told you, basically, he lived in a room of the palace, which was right on the Mediterranean, beautiful view, waves coming in. So it was a time of rest for the apostle, I think. People could bring him what he needed to bring him, it says there. They could visit him as he needed to be visited. And then an interesting thing occurs in verse 24. This, I think, is kind of fun and yet tragic at the same time. Starting in verse 24, it says, Now, after some days, Felix came with his wife, her name was Drusilla, or Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. At the same time, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when, notice, two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Excuse me one second. So again, Lysias never made it down, but we do have record that this fellow Felix met with Paul on multiple occasions uh, to ask Paul questions, to dialogue with Paul. Remember it said when Paul would go into the synagogues that he would reason with the people? And you may recall at the time I pointed out to you that that word reason meant dialogue, a back and forth situation. And the same type of thing is going on here. And so he's answering uh, Felix's questions during these interactions. We're never told what prompted Felix other than he was hoping that Paul would give him money uh, but we're never really told what prompted Felix to keep bringing Paul in uh, and to do so with his wife present. 
Some have suggested perhaps he wanted his wife present so she could kind of hear the case too, and he could say to her, so what do you think I should do, and get a little advice in that regard, maybe. Um, some uh, suggested that he was curious. She had a Jewish background, um, Drusilla, and so some of their conversations of, so you're telling me this Jesus guy is Jewish, this Paul guy was Jewish, and yet they're, the Jews are against them, and so maybe she was just curious in that regard, trying to figure all these things out. We're never really told. But whatever the reasoning might be for bringing this guy here, Paul sees it as an opportunity, and he's going to make the most of his opportunity. One of the things you'll notice in, the, in verse 24, 25, very different speech than he gave at his trial in the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning of the chapter, they charged me with these four things. I didn't do those four things. Here, no mention of those things at all. Here, he reasons with them about things like self sin, self-control, the coming judgment, righteousness. What Paul is doing is he's taking this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. That's it. That's why I'm here. I'm going to talk to you about uh, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Let me give you a little background on these two people, Felix and Drusilla. Felix, his actual name was Antonius Felix. He was a man that there's quite a bit of historical information written about him in Roman history. He was born as a Roman slave. He's the only Roman slave in the history of the empire to rise from being a slave to being a governor of a region or a province of the Roman Empire. That's cool, right? Like, wow, look at that, rags to riches kind of thing. Unfortunately, according to Roman historian, a guy by the name of Tacitus, now you, you've probably heard the name Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian in the Roman Empire. Tacitus was a Roman historian in the Roman Empire. All right, so uh, Josephus wrote a lot of history about what was going on with the Jews while they lived in this empire, Tacitus wrote a lot of history about what was going on in the Roman Empire with the Romans and so on. And he wrote about this fella, fella Felix and the fact that he had risen from being a slave to being a governor, and he commented on how his, what he called his slave mentality remained with him or stayed with him. And he said it caused him to become, in his words, a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was a bad guy. In another place, he said, Tacitus said that uh, Felix indulged in every license and in every excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity, without any penalty. All right, so this is a bad guy who had given himself to lust, had given himself to excess, had given himself to do whatever he wanted to do, thinking, I'm in charge, I'm the governor, I'm the king. Nobody can stop me. That's Felix. His wife, Drusilla, and I put that in quotation marks, uh, wasn't really his wife, was actually another man's wife that Felix seduced away from her while she was still a teenager uh, to become his wife. Drusilla seemed to willingly trade in the one husband for another because in Drusilla's estimation, this will advance my career further than this schmo over here. And so I'll leave him and I'll go with that guy, Felix, because 
that'll take me further in life. Drusilla was the, uh, the sister of Herod Agrippa II. He's a wonderful guy, right? We all love him, not so much. And also Bernice, uh, and maybe you don't recall her, but Bernice and Herod Agrippa and Drusilla, all brothers and sisters, um, and also brothers-in-laws and sister-in-laws because Bernice married her brother, Herod, and, you know, just, it's Jerry Springer. All right, it's one of those situations, again, in our Bibles. Not the, you know, most uh, righteous people there. Notice what Paul does. He's talking to the man who conceivably could say, in a dungeon with you for the rest of your life, off with your head. He could kill him. He could choose to do whatever he really wanted to do. He did it already with lots of other people. And with fearlessness, Paul stands before them and sees this as an opportunity not to rebuke them for rebuking sake. I'm going to put them in their place. Nobody else will. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to speak truth into their life so that perhaps their hearts will change. He presents the gospel to them. And he does so with fearless, telling this uh, sinful governor and his adulterous wife about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment. And he says that to a couple that knew little of righteousness and of self-control and lived life as if there would never would be a judgment. And so despite the fact that this guy in many ways holds Paul's life in his hand, Paul tells him and his wife exactly what they need to hear. And that's this, that their lack of self-control and sin would justly bring the judgment of God down upon them. That's what he tells them. Paul has an opportunity and he doesn't chicken out here. I'm humbled by that because I find many times in my life I do chicken out when I have that particular opportunity. And for me, it's not, well, you know, they may kill you or they may throw you in a prison. For me, it's they may talk about you behind your back or they may think you're weird or they may no longer invite you to those activities or you'll find yourself soon enough sitting by yourself at lunch because everyone, nobody wants to sit with you. And so I chicken out in those inst instances. Here's Paul before the governor and his wife potentially facing death and he tells them exactly what they needed to hear because what Paul knew is his life wasn't precious to him. These people's souls were more important to him than even his own life. And they needed to be warned. They needed to be warned that there was a coming judgment and that because of their sins had not yet been pardoned by the work of Jesus Christ, they would face that judgment. Notice Felix's response. It says in verse 25 that Felix was alarmed. A stronger writing of that, and maybe a more proper writing, is Felix was terrified. He heard, heard those words, they cut him deep, and he was scared to death, knowing that he deserved the judgment of which Paul spoke of. So Paul's words hit home with Felix, and he realized something needed to change. I really liked how G. Campbell Morgan uh, dissected what Paul had done here. G. Campbell Morgan is a wonderful uh, Bible teacher. If you can pick up any of his um, works, it's worth it. The best one he has ever written is uh, The Great Physician, which is just magnificent. Um, see if you can find it. 
but he said this, Paul was a true doctor of divinity. He knew the nature of the spiritual malady of Felix, and, he also, and also knew the course that the disease would pursue. The man was immoral, therefore Paul reasoned with him of righteousness. He was swayed by his passions, therefore he reasoned with him of self-control. He was rebellious against authority, therefore he reasoned with him concerning the tribunal before which he must ultimately render his account. Isn't that beautiful how he worded it? Felix had been exposed and he was terrified because of it. Notice his response, sadly. He sends Paul away. Paul says, essentially, so what do, you, what do you think about what I've said? And we know what he thought. He was alarmed by it. He was terrified by it. And he said, you know what? Go away. I'll bring you back at a more opportune time. And so although the things made sense to him and he knew what he had to do, he didn't make the decision to entrust himself to the Savior of whom Paul had spoken about. And rather, as he did with that trial earlier, he put it off. I, I do need to make a decision about this someday, but not now. And he put it off. I'll call you when I have a more opportune time. It's been said this, the road of by and by leads to the house of never. And sadly, that's the history of Felix. He never did receive Christ as Savior. We have no record of him pursuing that more opportune time with Paul to respond to what Paul was sharing. Roman history tells us that his attitude and behavior from this point on grew worse and worse, and that he was eventually recalled, that's the term we use these days, by the emperor of Rome because of the many complaints of the Jews. And essentially the Jews were able to communicate to the emperor, if you don't get him out of here, it's not going to be good. And the emperor finally said, you know what, get that guy out of there. Every day I'm getting letters about that guy. Eventually, Felix, from wherever it is that he ended up going, committed suicide. And he died. And he had the opportunity to have his heart changed. He had the opportunity to have his eternity changed. And he put it aside. I have plenty of time. I'll look for a more opportune time. There's a day I will get right with God, just not this day. And it cost him his soul. There's a reason why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. There's something that happens with the human heart when we, when we ignore what it is that God is trying to communicate to us. The Bible sort of describes it as a layer of skin forms over our hearts. When our hearts are tender, God can work. And every time that God is doing a work within us and we say, not now, God, it's as if there's a layer of skin that is put over us and then another layer of skin and another layer of skin. If that were to happen on our hands, we would call that a callus. Our hearts become callus. And you know what a, a callus on a hand can do? You can put a needle through, like uh, pins right through it or... Um, Stickers right through it, all that kind of stuff, and, and hardly even feel it because it's been so hardened. That's fine for your hand, but it's not good for your heart. Failure to respond to God's conviction when he is convicting 
puts us very much at risk of developing that hardened heart. And so whether we are talking about the response that brings us to the place of salvation, or we are talking about a response to God's work of sanctification that he wants to do in our lives as he's changing us after we've come to the faith, if we never respond, or if we fail to respond, we run the risk of never responding. Again, I'll quote, the road of by and by leads to the house of never. What Paul was saying made sense to Felix. And Felix knew what he needed to do. But he was unwilling to do it. Because for him to step out and accept Christ, for him to yield his heart to Christ, would mean that right there and right then, he would need to deal with sin, the sin in which he was living. Including with the lady that was alongside of him. And that was not something that Felix was willing to do. And he almost certainly died and went into eternal judgment, as far as the record is concerned. As I close our time of teaching this morning, I think we would all recognize that Felix is not the first person, and certainly not the last person, to know what they needed to do in response to God's leading that failed to do that very thing. He's not the first, he's not the last. I'm sure every one of us in this room, there's been a time like that in our lives, and maybe even presently there's a time like that in our lives. And so there are many that respond to Paul like Drusilla did, seemingly indifferent. That was fun, that was nice, that was entertaining, thanks for coming in. And then there are many that respond as Felix did, rejected, uh, rejected Christ by delaying his decision for Christ. Remember this, rejecting Christ through delay is still a rejection of Christ. And so again, I wouldn't be surprised that there's some among us here that God has been trying to deal with an area of our lives and we've been putting him off. Perhaps there's a young person here that knows what they need to do and has been thinking something like, you know, when I get a little older, I'll get serious about these things. Remember the scripture, today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're a person here that is engaged in a particular area of sin, and God's made it very, very clear to you. But you've been reluctant to give it up. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. Maybe you're a Christian. The Lord's been dealing with you in an area of personal holiness, and you've been putting it off. You're afraid to lay that down at the altar as well. I'll change my wording a little. Today is the day of sanctification. When God lays something on our hearts, it's ours to respond. Don't put off until tomorrow what needs to be done today. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare now to take communion, we do so reminding ourselves that you went to a cross to do what we could never do for ourselves. 
that every one of us in this room, everyone in this world, everyone that's ever lived, everyone that ever will live has a sin problem. The core of their being resides a sinner that just naturally goes in a direction that is apart from you. And yet you care for us so much, you love us so much, that you caused our problem to become your problem and you worked a solution to the problem. You as the righteous one went to the cross so that we, the sinful one, would not need to be judged. And you extend an opportunity for every single person in this room and outside of this room to receive the gift of salvation won by Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you desire such good things for us and for our hearts. You desire us to be transformed into the image of your Son. You desire for us to walk unhindered in the beauty of holiness, as it's referred. You desire to transform us, to deal with those things, Lord, that so easily beset us and to cut the chain so that we can run our race unhindered. And Lord, before we come to the table today for communion, we just want to bow before the cross of Christ in our mind's eye. And we want you to allow you to cut through any layers of skin that have formed that are hindering us from being tender, tender enough to respond to your leading. It's remarkable to us, Lord, that hundred and so of us can each come before your throne right now. And it's an audience of one. It's just you and us. And so, Lord, we take a few moments in your presence.